Good morning. Good to see you guys. Hey, if you have your Bibles, open them up. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is where we're going to be this morning. We're in our fourth week looking into chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. And I'm hoping by the end of the day we'll make our way through it. And, but in all honesty, we couldn't have gone any faster through this section. Because each week Paul has been addressing issues that are critical for us to consider. They're absolutely critical for us to see and to apply into our own lives. And he'll do the same again today, by the way, as he addresses the topics of singleness and marriage. Singleness and marriage. And this is actually, um, some of you right now are checking out. You're thinking to yourself, well, I'm already married, so this doesn't apply to me. Oh, yes, it does. Because if you don't understand what the Bible says about singleness you'll have a distorted view on marriage. And if you have a distorted view on marriage, it'll lead to either one of two positions. Either you'll over-desire marriage, if you have a distorted view on it, you'll over-desire marriage. But if you have a a distorted view also, some of you, you will under-desire marriage. So you want to go to the Bible and see what the scriptures, the ancient wisdom of the scriptures, has to say regarding marriage singleness, about the goodness of singleness, but then also what Paul will say about the goodness of marriage, because he's not pitting singleness against marriage at all. Um, What he's doing is he's highlighting the goodness of both options for a Christian. So we're going to look at the goodness of singleness and then the goodness of marriage. And then in the last last hour or so, um, some of you are visitors and you're like, I hope he's joking. (laughs) Uh, in the last little bit of time, what I'll do is I want, to, I want to give some really super practical advice, biblical counsel really, for those who are seeking marriage. Uh, and again, you may be thinking, well, this doesn't apply to me. Well, it does, because if you're a Christian, you're called to be a kingdom influencer. And you probably know people who are single, maybe a coworker, uh, maybe some of your friends, maybe closer still, maybe a kid. Or maybe a grandkid. And when they come to you for input, or even if they don't come to you for input, I've noticed grandparents, they don't need their kids to ask them for input or their grandkids to ask them for input. They sit them down and they say, I'm going to give you the input regardless. Uh, You want to have, you want to be able to give to them the biblical view so that they don't walk into marriage with a distorted view on marriage, which will distort other aspects of their life going forward. And again, this is an important topic uh, about singleness and marriage. So let's jump into it. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm going to just give you just a tish of review. Remember, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul has been dealing quite a bit with relationships. Um, First, he's talked about the marriage relationship and uh, the the sex relationship within a marriage. That's in verses 1 through 7. He, he talk, talks about sexuality within marriage. And then in verses uh, 12 through 16, he deals with marriage and divorce. Particularly if you're a Christian person who's married to an unbeliever, you need to seek to remain in the marriage to the best of your ability. If, you're, if your unbelieving spouse says they, they're willing to consent to stay within the marriage, you should seek to remain within the marriage because you're their best opportunity to hear about the gospel and to see the gospel at work in your life. 
And then he takes that same principle, remaining where you're at, in verses 17 through 24, and he applies it to all of life. And we looked at it last week from the lens of vocation and how the, God, and how the Lord calls us to the work that we do with our hands. And each and every vocation, each and every, every type of work, except for work that is exploitive in nature, right? Every type of work that is not exploitive in nature is a valuable and God-honoring occupation. And all of it's valuable. Now, today he's going to talk about, he addresses the issue of singleness and marriage in verses 25 through 40. And we're not going to look at all of it. We're going to move pretty quickly through it. But I want to see the main thrust of Paul's argument here. Now, look at what he says, verse 25. Now, concerning the betrothed. Uh, now, the word betrothed there, um, it's translated from a Greek word, which means married. I, I'm sorry, it means virgins. <laughs> it's translated from a, a Greek word that means virgins. And the term, more often than not, it refers to women who are of marriageable age, but they have never been married. So he says, now, concerning uh, the betrothed, or in some of your translations, it'll say virgins. He says, I have no command from the Lord. What he's saying is we don't have a teaching from Jesus on this, but I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. I think, Paul says, that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. He says, are you currently married? Uh, Stay married. Just as he said earlier in the chapter. He said, "You're, you're called to your spouse to represent Christ to the best of your abilities. If you're a Christian and you're married to an unbeliever, stay in that marriage. Do the best that you can to represent Christ in that marriage. And then he goes on. He says, are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And all God's people said, hey, mid, holy smokes, is that not true? And he goes, and I would spare you that. Verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. Now underline that phrase. If you're someone who is free in your conscience, the mark in your Bible, underline the phrase, appointed time has grown very short. And I'll tell you why. We'll come back to it in a minute. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And that's not what some of you guys, that is not what you're thinking, Paul's thinking in this moment. He says, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn, as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as, that, as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now again, underline that. For the present form of this world is passing away. Paul goes on, he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And implied in that is his family, how to secure, how to to please his family, take care of his family, uh, secure their future. And his interests are divided. 
And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and in spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. And again, implied her family. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Go ahead and stop there. You know, you read this, and on the surface, it's kind of confusing. Uh, and it seems to be at odds with Paul's exalted picture of marriage that he gives in Ephesians chapter 5. So what's the deal? Was Paul just having a bad day? Did he wake up on the wrong side of the bed? Um, did nobody cook him scrambled eggs for breakfast? What in the world is going on? Or is there something deeper going on? Is there a theological conviction that's driving Paul's statements that has profound ramifications on whether a person should pursue singleness or pursue marriage. And I think that's the case. As I I hinted at it by having you underline several phrases. I, I certainly think that's the case. Paul's teaching, well, here's what I'm gonna say. I'm gonna do a little bit of theology here for a moment. And for some of you who don't like theology, Get over it, because it has huge ramifications on your life. This actually will be, for some of you, the most important part of the message, what I'm about to say, because it will explain, it will explain why a six-week-old baby dies. It will explain the hardships of life. Um, it's not, it, it undergirds what Paul's going to say about singleness and marriage, but it has huge ramifications on every other aspect of your life. So what's Paul saying here? Um, He's talking about the already not yet kingdom and the tension of living within that reality, the already not yet kingdom. Well, what the heck is that? Well, here's what it is. In the Old Testament, the prophets taught that when the Messiah came, he would end decay. He would end the old order. Death, decay, divorce, disease, all of that would be eradicated. Um, For for those of you who have read or have seen the movie, um, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Aslan appears and the forest, which Lucy says is always winter and never Christmas, when Aslan is on the move, what happens? the forest starts unthawing, and like that, new life springs forth. You see, what what the prophets taught is that when the Messiah came, the age of God's kingdom would come, and the Messiah would banish death, decay, and and, um, disease, and new life would spring forth. And when Jesus came on the scene, now catch this, when Jesus came on the scene, he announced, I'm the Messiah. He announced the kingdom of God is at hand. But then to everybody's surprise, Jesus did not ascend to a throne, though they tried to make him a king by force. He didn't ascend to a throne, but rather he ascended to a cross, which means he didn't come to bring judgment. He came to bear it. He came to bear judgment. And it's through his death, well, let me back up. It's through his life his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, that new life is available. 
And you're able to enter into his kingdom now through genuine repentance and faith. So his reigning power as the king is among us, bringing new life and putting us right with God and with one another. And yet, yet, the present world is still here. This present world is not over. And this is the already not yet kingdom. Uh, if you're in some theological circles, they'll call it the um, inaugurated but not yet consummated kingdom, which is just a fancy theological way of saying that theologians who like to justify their degrees will use bigger words to say the exact same thing. Um, it's the already not yet kingdom, where we live under the direction of the king now, and yet there's still death there's still heartache. There's still unbelievable pain that we experience. But we wait for the day when the king will return in full. We wait for the day that the, the king will, res, will return in glory and establish his earthly kingdom. And so we live within this tension now. We still live in a world of decay and death and disease and dying. The already not yet kingdom that we live in, we live within the tension this is the kingdom of God. God's power to renew the whole creation has broken into the old world. It has broken into the old world through Christ's first coming. But it's not yet fully here. But Paul says, this world is living on borrowed time. Look at verse 29 again. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. The word for time there is the Greek word um, kairos. The Greeks, the Greeks have two words for time. One is chronos, which is where we get chronological for, from. It's like a chronological order. But kairos, the word that's used here, it refers to time as in like it's appointed time. Kairos time is like, when will the baby come? Well, we have a chronological guess, but the baby will come when it's time. It's time, by the way, not yours which means it's going to be 2 a.m. Um, almost guarantee you that. Um, it's, it has an appointed time. It has an appointed moment. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying the time is very short. The old order is still here, but it's doomed and it's passing away. It's living on borrowed time. That's why Paul says in verse 32, it's passing away. Now, listen, this, this theological conviction he has here, it has gigantic ramifications. Because on the one hand, what it means is all the material and social concerns of this world are still with us. It, it, it means Christianity is not escapism. You still live within this world and all of its pain, heartache, and mess. You're still drudging through crap at times, even as a Christian. You can't just wear rose-colored glasses. The world is still what it is. And we can't ignore it. We have to plan for tomorrow. And yet, we have to seek to make the world a better place today. But on the other hand, our assurance about God's future kingdom, it undergirds, and what it does is it provides tremendous hope in the midst of disease, in the midst of decay, in the midst of death. And it transforms, if you have set your heart on the things above, as Paul tells us to, if you seek first the kingdom of God, it, it, what it does is it transforms all of our thoughts regarding earthly matters. 
Which is why in verses 29 through 31, in essence, what Paul's saying is, because this world's passing away and the future world is coming, we should be grateful and happy for any success that comes our way, but not be fixated on it. And we should be saddened over any failure that comes our way. But we shouldn't be brought low by it because our future home and our future joy and our future life in heaven is guaranteed. And what that does is it enables you, if you really think about it, and you really slow down and consider it, what it does is it enables you to enjoy this present world without becoming completely engulfed by it, without becoming completely enthralled in the things of this world. Well, what, is, what does that mean? This theological conviction, what does that mean in regards to our attitude towards marriage and family? Here's what it means. What Paul, what Paul will say is this. It means that both being married and not being married are good conditions to be in. We should be neither overly elated by getting married or, or not, uh, not overly uh, deflated, not overly disappointed by not being married. Well, why would, that be, why would that be the case? Because truly, the scriptures tell us, and we'll see it in a couple of weeks, that Christ is our true spouse. And God's family is the only family that will truly embrace us and satisfy us for all of eternity. So what Paul's going to say right here, the very first thing, verse 27, he's going to affirm the goodness of singleness. Now look at what he says. He says, are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. And you can be sure that the inverse is true there. He says, you can apply it. Are you free from a husband? Don't seek a, don't seek a husband. Now you got to know, that is such a radical statement Paul makes here. It is absolutely a revolutionary thought that Paul teaches right there. Stanley Howarris, who's a uh, theologian at Duke, Duke Divinity School, used to live in Eugene. He, he makes this statement in, a, in his book, A Community of Character. He argues that Christianity was the very first religion, the very first religion, that held up a, a, a single adult life as a viable and God-honoring option. He writes, one clear difference between Christianity and Judaism and every other traditional religion is the former, so Christianity, is the former's entertainment of the idea of singleness as the paradigm way of life for its followers. That is radical. Because nearly every other ancient religion, nearly every other ancient culture culture made an absolute value of family and bearing children. You think about the book of Ruth and Naomi. She's absolutely brought low because family was the ideal. It meant everything. There was no real honor. There was no lasting legacy. There was no real life without, living, without leaving heirs. Without children, you essentially vanished. You had no purpose, you had no meaning, you had no significance. The main hope for the future, in every other traditional culture, in every other traditional religion, the main hope for the future was to have children and lots of them. And when it's a cold night and there's no internet, there's plenty of options for having lots of them. 
In ancient cultures and in some evangelical cultures, long-term single adults were considered to be living a less than fully realized human life. But that couldn't be the case for Christianity. Why? Well, because Jesus is the most complete human being who's ever lived. And he was single, as was the Apostle Paul. And so singleness, it can't be thought of as less than. And so what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is that singleness is a good condition blessed by God. And in some respects, he says, it's actually better than marriage. Now again, that is a revolutionary thought and teaching by Paul. Now, I got to also tell you this. I told this to the men on Friday. And if your husband is at the men's breakfast on Friday, you got to know he defended your marriage. Some guys were really upset about this teaching by Paul. They said, no, marriage is way better. Good for you guys and good for you women. Um, but what was the net effect of Paul's teaching? You know what it was? What it was is because of the gospel and because of the Christian hope of the future kingdom, Paul's teaching here, it de-idolized marriage. It de-idolized it. I said a couple of weeks back, in most evangelical churches, marriage is idolized, the nuclear family is normalized, and single people, therefore, they feel marginalized. And in that day, in that culture, there was no more radical act than to live a life that didn't include having a spouse and children. Because again, having children was the way to find significance. Having children was the way to leave a legacy because children hopefully would outlive you. Hopefully, they would, they would give you security, a future security, because they would take care of you as you aged. Christians, and now think about it, Christians in who remained single, who said, I'm, li I'm living as a single, they were making a statement that our future and our significance is not brought about by our family, but by the Lord himself. And marriage, while it's a good thing, while it's a great thing, and Family, while it's a good thing, it's a great thing. But it's not the ultimate thing. The Lord is. Marriage is a great thing, but it's not the ultimate thing. And the most important relationship in any marriage is not with your spouse. It's with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because every, even the best of marriages, by itself, it can't fill the void in our souls. And without a deeply and satisfying relationship with Jesus Christ, right now, Married Christians will put too much pressure on their spouse to fill that void. And it'll crush your spouse. It'll put a weight on them that they weren't intended to bear. And it'll crush your spouse. And in the end, it'll crush your marriage. And people who are single, they need to see and to understand that while marriage is a good thing, it's not the ultimate thing. It's really not the ultimate thing. And when they grasp that, what it does is it does a couple things from it. It frees them from putting too much weight on their dream of marriage. You ever notice people who are in one relationship after another relationship after another relationship after another relationship? They move from one relationship after another. You know why that is? It's because they have a dream of marriage. And it causes them to chase another, another relationship. And so by understanding that singleness is actually a good state, it frees them from putting way too much weight on their dream of marriage. The other thing it enables, when a Christian understands this, it will enable a single person to live a single life. It'll, it'll enable them to handle living a single life 
without feeling less than their married friends. And it'll enable a single person to move out in confidence. Because again, so often, uh, single people feel marginalized in the body of Christ. It will actually enable them to move out with confidence, knowing that your identity, your security, your purpose, and your meaning, they're all secured in Christ. And your marriage, as great as it is, may be here today and gone tomorrow. So your real meaning, your real security, your real purpose needs to be secured in Christ, with or without marriage. Now, I say all this and I look at you guys and you look at me like, I'm, you, uh, you got blank stares looking at me like, what in the world? This is not what I expected on a Sunday morning. Now, again, listen, Paul is not pitting singleness against marriage. It's not a competition, <laughs> right? He's not com- this is not a competition about which one's better or not. That's the way of the world. That's not the way of Christ. Paul's saying singleness doesn't make you less than anyone else, nor does it make you better than anyone else. But rather, singleness is a good and God-honoring option. And those who remain single, they bear witness that the Lord, not a biological family, is really their hope. So Paul affirms the goodness of singleness. Now, here's the second thing he does. He affirms the goodness of marriage seeking. Look again at verse 28. He says, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Now, now look at how unique Christianity's view on singleness and marriage is. Because unlike traditional cultures, uh, Christianity it sees singleness as a good and God-honoring option. Because we've been brought into deep union with Christ. We've been really brought into a deep union with Christ and he fulfills our, our greatest needs. And yet at the same time, unlike most of Western culture, Christianity doesn't fear or avoid marriage. Because most of Western cultures, most, most Western cultures, they fear and avoid marriage. So what Paul does is he, I don't want to say straddles the fence, but he walks the line and he affirms the goodness of singleness and he affirms the goodness of marriage seeking. So while most cultures, most traditional cultures, they idolize marriage because they tend to idolize the family, our culture idolizes what? Independence. We idolize, in our culture, we, we tend to idolize independence, individual choice and freedom, which is why many young people today are commitment-phobic. They're absolutely commitment-phobic, and they can't stand the idea of limiting their options for the sake of another. In 2002, there was a uh, significant study. It was entitled um, The National Marriage Project. It was funded by Rutgers University in New Jersey, so a secular university. Um, and one of the, within, the, within the study, one of the articles was why men won't commit. And listen to what the author said. They stated this, our investigation of male attitudes indicates there is evidence to support the popular view that young men today are commitment phobic. By the way, do you know the average age of a man marrying today is 33 years of age? Is that kind of shocking? Commitment phobic. And they go on, in the, in the study, they list different reasons why, they, why men would rather not get married, or at least not anytime soon. But the most striking one is this. They won't marry until they have found the perfect 
soul mate. Thank you very much, Disney. And according to, um, according to the study, one of the key factors for, for finding the perfect soulmate was physical attractiveness and sexual chemistry. The National Marriage Project, listen to what they state. This is my favorite quote in the whole day. It says, a pornographic media culture may also contribute to unrealistic expectations of what young men think their future soulmate should look like. Influenced by the sexy images of young women on the internet and on the runway in television Victoria's Secret specials, men may be putting off marriage. Now listen to this. Men may be putting off marriage to their current girlfriend in the hopes that they will eventually find a combination soulmate slash babe. <laughs> now listen. That's true. And it's by the way, it's not just young men who have been affected. The same study says young women see marriage not as a way, not as a way of creating character and of creating community, but as a way of reaching personal life goals. In the study, it says they are looking for a marriage partner who will fulfill the, all of their emotional, sexual, and spiritual desires. Now listen to what that means. Both the guy and the girl, they don't see marriage. They do not see marriage as two flawed people coming together to create a space of stability in life and love. They don't see it as that. And this leads many people looking right past really good prospective partners who simply aren't good enough and don't measure up. How different would it be how different would it actually be if both the guy and the girl were already fulfilled in Christ? They say, I already have an identity in Christ. I'm already satisfied in Christ. I already have deep meaning and lasting destiny in Christ. And we recognize because we're in Christ, we're not perfect. In fact, my character's messed up. And I hate to tell this about you, honey. Your character's a little messed up too. We recognize we're not perfect, but we're going to see if together, if together with our strengths and our shortcomings, if we can actually help each other grow into the people that God created us to be. How much different would our world be if we actually had those attitudes regarding singleness and marriage? And you may be thinking to yourself, well, that all sounds really nice and churchy, but what about attraction? Shouldn't attraction be there? Well, yeah, of course it should be. But here's the deal. It's got to be more than physical attraction. Right? There has to be a character component to it. There has to be a worldview component to it. Because if people just choose their spouses based on physical attractiveness and money, when those things go away, and they will. I used to tell Tria, you just married me for my body. She looks at me now and says, no, 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 that is not the case. You look like your dad. <laughs> so does there have to be a physical attractiveness piece to it? Sure, yeah, of course. But it's got to be more than that. There has to be, there has to be a character component to it. And there has to be a shared worldview. Because if you marry just for money, 
If you marry just for physical attractiveness, if you marry just because you guys share a certain hobby, well, when those things go away, and they all will, then you realize you're married to a person that you don't really respect or really love. And that's a darn place to be. That's where real heartache and real pain begins. So you see what Paul does here? He affirms, what he does is he affirms the goodness of singleness, and he also affirms the goodness of marriage seeking. Both, both states, he says, both are great states to be in. The question is, well, let me close like this. Let me just offer some advice, because I, have, I just looked at the clock and I have way more to go, and not enough time. Um, so let me close by saying, let me offer some practical advice. Here's the first piece, right? Take seriously Paul's counsel. Take really seriously Paul's counsel. Look down at verse 35. I want you to see it again. Paul says, I say this for your own benefit. Your own benefit. I want you to consider singleness. I want you to consider marriage. I want this to be for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. He says, if you want to get married, get married. He says, if you want to remain single, remain single. Both are good God-honoring options. But to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. And what we need to do is we need to take seriously Paul's counsel. Instead of adopting all the countless criteria that the world offers, now that we know that there's the goodness of singleness and the goodness of marriage, we would be wise to ask ourselves in which state, single or married, can I best serve the Lord? In what state, as a single person or as a married person, can I best serve the Lord? And here's what happens more often than not. People automatically assume that it's in a, it's in a state of singleness that I can best serve the Lord because we would be free from entanglements. But you know what? That might not be the case. It might not be the case. I'll give you an example out of my own life. Um, if I were single... I would have more time to do teaching. I would have more time to do church stuff, counseling and whatever. More time to work at the Bible college, these, these kind of things. So I'd, I'd have more time. But I know I'm so dang introverted. You may not know this, but I'm a total introvert. I, can't, I don't really care to talk other than Sunday morning. I know I'm so introverted that if I was single... I would seldom come into contact with people who aren't already Christians. I would hardly ever come into contact with people who aren't Christians. But my wife, Tria, she's a total extrovert. She loves talking all the time <laughs> to anyone. All the time. Uh, uh, 20 years ago, Tria, my, our next door neighbors, when I say next door neighbors, we're talking 50 acres over, right? So their dog gets loose. Her dog gets loose. And she comes up to our house. I'm not there. Tria is. They start talking. And she says, yeah, I'm engaged. Um, but we can't find a pastor to officiate our wedding. And my wife says, oh, my husband will do it. <laughs> Doesn't tell me. These people aren't Christians. My husband will do it. Sure. I, you've been voluntold by your wife. 
Uh, that was the situation. I, uh, I drug my feet. I said, no, honey, I don't have time for this. I don't know these people. Why would I marry these people? Here's what happened. 20 years. 20 years have gone by. And uh, they get married. I officiate their weddings. One of the funnest weddings I've ever been to. We build a relationship. Her grandfather dies. She calls me. I officiate the funeral. She calls me a little bit later. They're, they have marriage crisis. I give them counseling for several years. She calls me later and says, I'd like to read the Bible. She reads the Bible. She calls me a little bit later and says, I trusted Christ. Now listen, listen. None of that would have happened if I was single. None of it would have happened. None of it. Absolutely none of it. So you have to ask, you have to, knowing what you know of yourself, Knowing what you know of yourself, you have to ask yourself, which state could I better serve the Lord? Could I do it as a married person? Or would I serve the Lord better as a single person? Which, which state could, would, could I be in to make a greater impact for the kingdom of God? Michael Green, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, Michael Green is long dead now, but uh, his, his commentary on 1 Corinthians, he writes this. He says, The quantity of time available for Christian involvement may be reduced once we're married, but its quality may be enhanced. At all events, I, you, have no right to marry unless I have honestly faced the question of the impact marriage will have on my Christian life and service. And he's absolutely right. So what does that mean for us? It means we need to take seriously Paul's counsel and ask ourselves, in what state, singleness or marriage, can I best serve the Lord? Here's the second piece of advice. Um, second piece of advice is this. Don't allow yourself deep emotional involvement with a non-believing person. Don't allow yourself deep emotional involvement with a non-believing person. And I know this is a controversial point, and I do not care. Um, it is a controversial point, but the Bible assumes everywhere that Christians who are going to marry should marry other Christians. I didn't have you look at it, but skip down to verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies... She is free to be married to whom, to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. So it's an, he says, you've got to marry another Christian. Other passages in the Bible, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, also teach this principle. If you go to the Old Testament, the Jews were not allowed to marry non-Jews. And at first glance, some people look at that and they say, well, that's racism. He's saying they can't marry outside of one's race. And that's not the case at all. Because in Numbers chapter 12, Moses, he marries a, a woman of another race. Which reminds us that God's not concerned about marrying outside of one's race. He's concerned about marrying outside of one's faith. Now, why would that be the case? Well, let me read you a quote from Tim Keller. Listen to what Keller says, and this is so darn true. He says, if your partner doesn't share your Christian faith, then he or she doesn't truly understand you from the inside. And if Jesus is central to you, then that means your partner doesn't truly understand you at all. He or she doesn't understand the mainspring of your life, the ground motive of all that you do. If you marry someone who doesn't share your mostly, if, if you marry someone who doesn't share your most, most deeply held and core beliefs, 
then you will repeatedly make decisions that your partner won't be able to fathom at all. That part of your life, and it is the most important part, will forever be opaque and mysterious to your spouse. And Keller is so darn right. And you may be thinking to yourself, no, no, he's not. Listen, I counsel a lot of married women who are married to non-Christian men, and this is their experience all the time. It's always their experience. The Bible says, you want to have a thriving and healthy marriage? Then you and your spouse need to have a shared worldview. That which drives your motives, your actions, your decision making. Otherwise, you, you both will be spinning your wheels in opposite directions. You'll both be spinning your wheels. And what's interesting is social science is finally coming to catch up with the Bible. At Northwestern University in Chicago, they offer a class called Marriage 101. And it's their most popular class every single term. And this is a real class. This is not underwater basket weaving so the University of North Carolina basketball team can get its grades up. Uh, this is, it's a legitimate class. The students attend weekly lectures. They discuss topics from infidelity to addiction to child rearing to sexuality in long-term relationships. They talk about communication. They have to interview uh, mentor couples and write papers on it. So it's a legitimate class. And one of the professors recently, in an article in The Atlantic, now listen to what he says. He says, despite how often we hear about the importance of good communication, even the best communication skills won't help a couple who see the world completely differently. Now listen to that. Because we're always told, if you go to marriage seminars, they'll always tell you, well, what you need is to work on your communication. You just need to be better communicators. And he says, no, no. He says, people can be incredibly proficient communicators and yet never really see eye to eye because they can't understand how their partner can hold a position that they see as untenable. Now listen, that's exactly what the Bible says. It's exactly what the Bible says. Again, social science is finally catching up with the ancient wisdom of the scriptures. And it's the reason for the biblical principle. If you marry someone who doesn't share your faith, there's really only two ways forward. One is that you'll become less and less transparent about your faith. If you marry someone who's not a believer, you're going to become, over time, less and less, one of the options is you're going to become less and less transparent about your faith. Because in the normal, healthy Christian life, you relate Christ and his gospel to everything. You will base your decisions on Christian principles. You will look for Christian themes in movies. And when they pop up, you'll annoy your family by talking about them. Um, you'll say, look, that points, that points to the gospel right there. You'll think about and you'll talk about what you're reading in the Bible. Your prayer life, what's your most deeply concerning things, will come out in prayer and you'll talk about it with your spouse. Well, you'll talk about what you're reading in the Bible. But if your spouse isn't a believer, they will find it totally offensive and annoying. And they'll say something to the effect of, oh, here you go talking about this Jesus junk again. That's what it'll happen. And you'll have to hide it. If you're the Christian in that marriage, you'll have to hide it. Why? In order to keep the peace in your home. That's one of the ways forward. The other way forward is you'll just have to move Christ out of first place in your mind. And you'll have to let your love for the Lord cool. 
You'll have to deliberately not think about how your Christian commitment relates to every area of your life. You'll have to demote Christ in your mind and your heart. Because if you keep him central, if you keep him central, you know why? If you keep him central, you'll always feel isolated from your spouse and he or she from you. If Christ is central to you and it's not to your spouse, you will always have a level of isolation with your spouse. This is why, this is why, if you're a Christian, you should submit to the biblical understanding, to the biblical perspective of not becoming too emotionally involved with a person who's an unbeliever. And if you say to yourself, well, I can't submit to the Bible's teaching on this, fine, submit to social sciences. Doesn't matter, one way or the other, just submit to it. Because both social science and the Bible are telling you the exact same thing. You need to have a shared faith. And if the shared faith isn't there, don't go down the road. Here's the last piece of advice. Uh, if you're a marriage seeker, get and submit to lots of community input. Get and submit to lots of community in- input. Here's the reality. As soon as you start dating somebody, you tell me if I'm telling you something that's not true. As soon as you start dating someone, your hormones and your emotions are all out of whack. Is that not true? You're totally infatuated. You're not, you're thinking blindly at that moment. You're not perceiving anything clearly. And therefore, one of the best things you can do is you can go to an older, wiser Christian that you know and trust and let them offer their perspective. And you know what's interesting about that? We do it pretty much in every every other area of our life. Do you buy a car without letting somebody else check it out? No, you take it normally, if you're intelligent, you take it to a mechanic before you buy it. And you say, hey, I know nothing about this, but I know it's red and it goes fast. What do you think? I should probably have your input on this. Um, we do it in every other area of our life. We get community input from everything else. But with marriage, for some reason, we think to ourselves, this is a strictly individual decision. And it should never be a strictly individual, unilateral decision. It's too important, and your personal feelings and emotions are too easily skewed. And the church, the body of Christ, God's family, has a lot of married people in it who have much hard-earned wisdom and they can see much further down the road than you can see. And you need to listen to them. You need to hear them. It's one of the benefits of actually belonging to a church that's multi-generational. There's, there's older people in it who can tell you, hey, in 10, roads, in 10 years down the road, this is what you're going to be facing. You need to think about it. You need to consider it. That's a huge benefit. So, Singles, if you're a single person, you should get community input every step of the way when you're seeking married. When you're seeking marriage. And married couples, if you're a married couple right now, you know what you should be doing? You should be building relationships with people who are single. Not trying to make matchmaker, not trying to play Cupid, but trying to build a relationship with them so that you should be inviting them into your homes and into your lives displaying the real work of marriage. The fun parts, of course. But you should also be sharing with them the hard aspects. Because singles need to see how hard and how glorious marriage can be. They need to understand that marriage is real work. They need to see that marriage actually represents the gospel. 
It's a story of sin. It's a story of grace. It's a story of restoration. Because every marriage has sin and grace and restoration, does it not? And singles, what they need, they need to see that reality. They need to see that reality all the time. So that the gospel is not just spoken about at church, but it's in our homes and it's lived out in our day-to-day lives. So that young singles can see healthy marriages that don't just talk the gospel, but actually live it out in their homes. Amen? Let me pray and then we'll sing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. And Father, we pray for those within this room or within the sound of my voice who are single, that they would have a deep and satisfying relationship with you first and foremost. That they would understand that they are in deep union with Christ. And that is a, they're in a great and glorious state just as they are, Lord. And if you call them to marriage, then let them walk into that faithfully, Lord. But if you call them to singleness, let them walk into that as well, faithful to you. For those of us who are married, Lord, we pray that we would uh, strengthen our single brothers and sisters to the best of our ability, that we'd love them well, that we would incorporate them fully into the body of Christ, and that we ourselves in our marriages, that we would make Christ the central point of our marriage that he would be the mainspring, you would be the mainspring of our individual lives and the mainspring of our marriages, Lord. And that the story of the gospel of sin and of grace and of restoration, it would be an ongoing reality in each one of our homes so that the gospel is not something that we just talk about on Sunday morning. It's a gospel reality that we live out the rest of the week. So we trust you for these things, Lord, and we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.